Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Today we are joined with the one and only Andrew Bogut, NBA champion. Uh, first basketball player from Australia to enter the league, also lasso investor and just altogether good guy, uh, friend of the brand, friend of us. Uh, Bogues, man, we're so happy to have you on. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Man, so, uh, you know, growing up in Australia, I think we, we could just kind of start at the beginning. How, how, how'd you really get into basketball and what gave you the confidence to feel like you could, you could make it into the league from, from over there, which, you know, hadn't been done before? Yeah, just first in the intro, I'm not the first Australian basketballer to make the NBA our first Australian. Number one. one. Yeah, number one. <laughs> oh, that's my bad, bro. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I just don't want any of your listeners to, to fire up at you. So um, yeah, we have Luke Longley, <laughs> Luke Longley Chris Anderson, a few other ones before me. But um, yeah, man, look, I mean, it was never really um, something that I thought was achievable uh, as a young fella. I thought um, for me to make the NBA or the Australian League, at best playing Europe or overseas and maybe make a bit more money would be... A dream. Um, I thought I've always equated the NBA to me was was a unicorn, was a fantasy that was like, yeah, it'd be great to do, but I didn't think it was realistic because you know the track record of Australians growing up in Australia, playing in Australia, and then getting drafted or ending up in the NBA and actually playing were, were very rare. It was one guy. It was Luke Longley. Luke Longley was the only guy that had a long term career where he was in a rotation or, and a starting big man and played. You know, close. He played ten years, I think. Um, beyond that, we had guys that had, you know, cups of coffee for for a year or two, or were fringe guys, right? So, yeah. like, with the numbers and the, the odds of that happening, it was very rare. So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't really something I had on my radar. Um, not as a young fella, anyway. I love the NBA, but and then as my kind of teenage years, adolescence years formed into like my late teens, it just all happened so quickly. Then all of a sudden, within a year of going to college, I was on NBA draft radars and and, and draft uh, mock drafts and all that kind of stuff, and it literally happened within three years, and I was in the NBA, so it was kind of it all came together quickly. Going into that journey of making it to the league, when did you get when did you get your size? Like, did that happen for you in high school? Did that happen, you know, earlier than that? Uh, so for me, it was I was tall early. Uh, so primary school was always a taller kid, and then. You know, in Australia, you go to primary school, elementary school is one to prep to six, and then high school seven to twelve. So year seven and year eight, uh, year seven I was still the tallest kid, and then year eight and nine, so my second and third year in high school, I just kind of stopped growing completely. Like all my friends were passing me or catching up to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so then that actually helped me basketball wise because I started playing some smaller positions and started playing, you know, the forward and the off guard and the two guard at times and helped my ball handling and passing and all that. Mm-hmm. And then I, I really shot up when I was like, I think it was 15 and a half, 16 to 17. I shot up like six inches in a year. Wow. And um, yeah, so I just kind of over, outgrew everyone and, and then got a few more inches towards the tail end of my, my teenage years and then got to seven foot. So it was kind of a roller coaster ride with my height. I was always, always knew I was going to be tall. It was just a matter of how tall, but then it, you know, I definitely did stop growing for like a year or two there. And I was like, what the hell's going on? But um, then it all, it all caught up the following year. I love well, that. I want to tap, I want to tap into the, the actual 
journey from Australia to the United States, right? We, we see this in sports a lot, the transition that happens for elite athletes coming to a pro sports league in the States. Obviously, in your case, being Australian, the language barrier wasn't the same, but there still are cultural barriers and shifts and the challenges of leaving everything you've known behind in another country. Immigrants go through this generally whenever they leave. How was that process for you leaving and making that decision um, with your family to come to the States uh, to go to college? Well, yeah, I didn't come with my family. I, I, yeah, I came, I came solo, which was, you know, I, I went to the AIS in Australia. So the AIS, Australian Institute of Sport, is, um, was basically set up in the 80s by the, the country and it was a, a state-of-the-art training facility for Olympic sports because they identified that we sucked at the Olympics in the 80s and they're like, we can't, can't continue to go to Olympics and not perform and get medals, so we're going to build this world-class facility. Athletes live there. They train 24-7. They go to school. So I, I, I got a scholarship there when I was 16, 17. And that was huge because it, it, it made me move out of home. Um, you have to do your own washing. You have to kind of do your own scheduling at 16, 17. You know, you're showing up late for stuff. You get punished, all that kind of stuff. So it taught you how to kind of fend for yourself and and, and the daily um, chores you have to do as, as an adult. <clears throat> so then when I got to, to Utah, I thought, oh, I'm good. I've been, I've been doing this for two years. And yeah, I was, I was kind of ahead of the curve as far as doing all my own stuff compared to most college students. But what I didn't realize was all of a sudden I'm not a flight. I'm not one hour flight from home. Um, I'm not one phone call away because back then it was, um, it was very expensive to call overseas. Like it was, it was like four or $5 a minute, massive time difference. So, you know, you wouldn't hear from your family at times for, for four weeks, months on end. Right. Um, sometimes yeah. it's, I'd, the coaches would let me sneak into their office, and I, which was deemed illegal by NCAA, which is a joke in itself. And I'd, I'd use their um, office phone to call home for like a minute, right? Um, <clears throat> but it was very hard. I was, I was very homesick at times. I had a really hard-nosed coach my first year, so trying to adapt to a new life, being away from family, being away from home, a whole new culture, a whole new way of, you know, the way people go about their business on a daily basis is different to Australia. Um, having an accent, obviously standing out, and then, and then. On top of that, having to study, go to school, go to class, and um, and train and play and travel, it was hard. And, and like I said, my coach did me no favors. He was very, very tough on me. And you know, there were, there, were, there were some tough, tough times, tough days, tough weeks where you question whether it was all worth it. Whether like, hey, do I just go home and <clears throat> be content with 100, 200 grand a year playing in the NBL at that time and be close to family and and all that, or do I continue to kind of grind out, potentially going going to the NBA and um, I didn't like I said I didn't go to the college go to college thinking I'm going to be in the NBA. I just thought it'd be a great step for my career, potentially Europe. Um, but then like once I got there and started playing, it, it all kind of came together. Wow! And after you know after your year in um, Utah, you went to uh, Milwaukee. Um, was that like a totally different environment than anything you'd experience in Australia? You know how was how was the weather? How cold? I don't even know how cold it gets down there. Yeah, it was really hard. Um, so Utah snows. So I thought I was at Utah for two years, and I thought when I got, when, when, when I got drafted by Milwaukee, my, my first thought was like, ah, it's at least I'm prepared for snow because I was in Utah. But it's a whole different snow there. Um, Utah's climate's actually pretty good for a, for a place that snows. It's usually always around you know zero, or you might go five under, ten under Fahrenheit. Um, but Milwaukee was was brutal. It was cold, like minus. Minus twenty five with a minus fifty wind chill, so I wasn't ready for that. Um, that was definitely an adjustment, and I, I enjoyed Milwaukee as a city. Uh, um, it was, it's it, it 
gets a lot of shit on the NBA circuits and just with people in general. Um, it's a blue collar town, but it, it was very <clears throat> family orientated. Um, the city was easy to navigate. There's good restaurants, good places to go. Wasn't a big, you know, um, Chicago or San Francisco by any means. But as far as from from my journey to the NBA, I thought it was a city that didn't have as many distractions as as what New York or something like that would have been for a 19 year old kid. So. A twenty-year-old at the time, so it, it it was it was fine for me. I enjoyed my time there. I mean, the only thing I didn't enjoy was the weather. But as far as the city and the people, um, it still holds a, a very special place in my heart. It's awesome. Did you did you uh, did you at what point did you figure out? Hey, I'm probably going to be the first overall pick. And what significance or what meaning did that have to you? And did you act? Were you actually aware of how much significance it had for your country as well? Yeah, like I didn't know till late. Like, as so between my freshman and sophomore year, I had an okay freshman year. I averaged I think thirteen and ten a night, or just under. I was like twelve point nine and nine point nine at night. So I was on I was on draft boards as like a potential, you know, late first rounder. Um, needed to work on my body and all that stuff. And then in between my freshman and sophomore year, I, I go to the Olympics with the national team as a nineteen year old kid that's, you know, hasn't got a hair on his chin. I go I go to Athens and I play really well. We play the dream team, the US, the Tim Duncan and LeBron and all those guys. I played really well. Um, and that all of a sudden jumped me up on on now all of a sudden, you know, mid to late first round most likely, depending on how the sophomore year goes. So then I get to my sophomore year, I just had so much confidence from playing against grown men in the off season playing well that I felt like I was playing against boys again in college. So I was dominating and, and as each month went on from, from my sophomore year, I would go another three or four spots higher on those mock drafts. So by the end of the season it was like he's a top three pick. So then it was a matter of okay, the lottery's up, who who's gonna you know, sometimes you know, a team might get the number one pick that has a big guy or vice versa, right? So um, Milwaukee got the number one pick and then Atlanta got two and then my agent was like, we're not even going to work out for any other teams. You're going one or two. Um, he was that confident and he just put pressure on on those two teams and, and just said, we're not working out for anyone else. And Milwaukee didn't really have a big at the time. Um, Atlanta kind of was, you know, in the mix as well and from what we understand, they, they were going to, it was out of myself and Marvin Williams, which I thought was crazy at the time because CP3 was in that draft. I thought he'd go, he'd be battling us um, yeah. for that number one pick. And it, I guess teams had reservations at that point about a small point guard. Mm. But that's funny how the NBA has changed. But um, yeah, and then, and then they got the pick who did the workouts. Sometimes teams will tell you uh, pre, pre-draft and say, look, if you're at this spot, we'll take you. Um, but Milwaukee wouldn't tell us. And my agent was grilling him, saying, like, let us, you know, and they, they wanted it to be a genuine uh, look of surprise, I guess, is, is their <laughs> methodology with it. And it was. So, I, I, you know, I expected to go one or two, to be honest with you. I didn't expect to go much lower than that. And, you know, ended up being the first guy on stage, which was pretty cool. Man, that's so awesome. Um, you you uh, then went um, over to the Warriors. I saw that you had a brief stint during the lockout where you, you went back home for a little bit. Um, when you went to the Warriors, that was, I think, the start of, you know, the historic era and, and run that they've been on. Uh, what was that, you know, what was that experience like being the being a part of building a championship culture? I mean, you obviously played a huge role um, in in the entire run uh, and, and still have great relationships with the guys. Like, what was that like? Because I think, you know, amongst NBA history, I think that was, that was, one of those rare moments where you just saw such a high level of excellence for such a long period of time. 
uh, for me, it was a sliding doors moment because I was in Milwaukee and we hadn't had a lot of success. Um, I think I was getting better as a player, started to you know be a really good defender and was top five in, in rebounds and blocks and all that kind of stuff. And um, it just got to a point where I thought we were a small market that could never get top tier free agents. Um, it felt like a revolving door. We'd get guys towards the end of their deals. They'd come in and try to get their numbers up and then get out. And I just grew frustrated. And I remember going and talking to the GM at the time and saying, look, I'd like to explore you know, the trade market. I didn't go public with it. I just said, look, if there's an offer on the table, um, I think you should consider it. I think it's just time we move on. And, and I, I go to Greener Pastures and you guys move on from me. And you know, we, we amicably <clears throat> break up. And they, they pushed back and said, this was this was after the lockout year. This was 2011-12. They're like, no way. We're not going to get fair value back for, you know, a top five big man at the time. We're not going to do that, this, that, this, that. So I was like, all right, cool. So I just said, look, I'm, I'm kind of starting to get a bit a little bit frustrated. I'm not going to go public with it, but just, just see what happens. And then literally like four, three or four weeks later, I break my ankle and um, get undercut by Kyle Lowry. I land on his foot break my ankle and all of a sudden, so coach at the time was half in the hot seat. The GM was in the hot seat. They knew they needed to try and win and at least salvage that season and get to the playoffs. So then all of a sudden they're like, maybe we do move him if we can, cause he's hurt. You can't, I was out for the season at that point. So yeah. they, they reach out, they get the deal done with Golden State, which brings in Monte Ellis and Epe Udo. We're both healthy and playing well. They bring them in. They moved me in, I think it was Stephen Stephen Jackson, I think, um, in that deal. Go to Golden State, Golden State waived Stephen Jackson. They, they At that point, Golden State were horrible. They, were, they couldn't make the playoffs anyway. They were basically just treading water, trying to rebuild for the next season. They're going to have some some picks that they needed to, to kind of half tank for, um, make sure they protect those picks. And, and then, yeah, I went over there and walk end up making the eight seed, so it worked out for them as well. But then that, that's the only reason I really got out. I, I, I truly believe I would, I would have been there for a long, long time if, um, wow. if I didn't break my ankle. And then I get there and Golden State's in disarray, even probably worse than what what Milwaukee was at the time, you know, had it been to one, one playoff series in 20-odd years and they celebrated that every other day like it was a championship when they beat Dallas in the first round. It was like we used to have an inside joke as players, like, geez, man, like it was a good year, but the we believe is like that's their championship, like all the markings that yeah. Yeah. We believe we believe it's like the second round exit. Um, yeah. as, as big as it was, as an eight seed, it was that was the most success they'd had in twenty years. So, yeah. um, it took time. We we you know we drafted right. Harrison Barnes, Draymond Green, and and Festus Azili, high character guys. You know, good people first and foremost. Bring them in. We made some tweaks. Got some veterans in. Richard Jefferson was also there. So, um, yeah, it was just. It was getting good people in and just slowly turning it. And and what people don't understand as well is people at the time were pissed that they lost Monte Ellis because the, they yeah. Warriors they sucked. But Monte Ellis was worth the price of admission because he, he'd score 30, 40 a night, flashy, small guy, up and unders, like getting in the paint. But what that did is it freed up Steph. So Monte was a high usage guy, as is Steph. And you can't have two high usage guys on the same team. So what it did was, it, it, it even if they traded uh, Monte for nothing and just got rid of him, it just freed up Steph into what he is today. It gave him the freedom to to be the high usage guy every night. Um, whereas when they were both together, it, it was like one night Monte would have forty, one night Steph would have thirty, and there was a kind of a, a, in a battle within that group. And 
the rest is history. We just, you know, we, we, we had a great group of guys. We built it the right way and the organisation made some very hard decisions. I mean, firing Mark Jackson wasn't popular at the time. Um, they made that decision and, and, and the rest the rest is history. Like, it's just been amazing to see how, how long they've been able to sustain this. I mean, there's a game here in an hour. Um, we're in the conference finals again. So, I mean, it's been exciting to watch. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it seems to be uh, unique. Obviously, basketball fans know even one of the unique things about Golden State is even when they do, they were terrible, the fans showed up. Uh, it has a very loyal fan base. And yep. it, was it was great to see, um, even though you guys beat, beat, beat the Cavaliers, our, both of our home, hometown team, it was good to kind of see that at the start, just how you could go from nobody to somebody by building a culture and, and taking the long road there. I actually wanted to ask you about that as, as a player. Um, one of the most challenging things, and it's, it's well-documented, was the firing of Mark Jackson and, and hiring of Steve Kerr. Now, in retrospect, you know, obviously, Steve is one of the greatest coaches of all time and is recognized as that now. But at the time, Mark Jackson had 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 gotten had driven you guys to some success, um, and also didn't exit um, quietly. He he see, seems to still hold some animosity there. How was that for you guys as players, uh, kind of going through that that process and 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 the test of loyalty to to the coach that helped you get there versus hey, this might not be the guy that needs to take us to the next level. What was that? He was he was a big part of what what we'd gone through to get to even just being a, a playoff team every season. That was a huge step for, for the Warriors at that point. But I think everyone with with the basketball brain knew I think he'd taken us to as far as he could have. He was on record, you know, within within our coaches group thinking that we weren't a championship roster when he was yeah. there. Um, but there were other people within the organization saying we, we believe we have a conference finals slash finals roster. Yeah. Um, and he was pushing back on that, saying, no, we don't. But so, yeah, you got to respect the work he's done. But I also think he got us this, he got us to that second round max and, and that was a ceiling for us, like with him coaching. Like our style of play wasn't – it wasn't a ball movement type offense. It was very 90s New York Knicks style. Yeah. You know, whoever scored the last basket, we're going, we're going back to him until, they, until that player misses. Then we'll go, okay, now we'll go run some stuff for you and then – you dry up, we'll go here where, you know, the game's changed. Like, it's it's not a great way to play. And, and we we had some players in that squad that really struggled with that. Um, you know, there'd be possessions where guys wouldn't touch a ball 10 trips down, you know, and then all of a sudden they have to hit a big shot in the fourth quarter because, you know, the guy that's hot's been doubled and they're like, man, oh, I saw what the ball feels like. I've got to make this shot. So, um, you know, he, there was good and bad. And like I said, I think you have to be respectful of what he, he was part of the journey, but I don't think – we get a championship with him still at the, at the helm. So it was an unpopular decision at the time, especially, like I said, the last 20 years, we, the Warriors had done really nothing. One one year yeah. where they made the playoffs and did okay. So fans were like, what the hell? Like the first time we've had back-to-back -back playoff appearances in, in two decades and now you're firing the coach, what's going on? But look, there were things off the court that weren't, you know, the best at times. Um, people make mistakes and I'm sure Mark will – you know, write those things down, have him in his you know, little notebook and, and, and learn from those mistakes that he made. And much like I made mistakes when I was there as a player and, and you got to move on that way. But, you know, I mean, Steve Kerr coming in was was a breath of fresh air in my opinion. I think he he didn't come in and 
try to revamp the whole system because we'll, you know, we're still a good team. We're still top five, top ten defensively. Our offense was a bit of an issue. We turned the ball over a lot, so he made little tweaks and and didn't try to, you know, repaint the the the, the canvas as to say and and you know. <laughs> Also, you know, he fell into a good situation. People forget Steve Kerr was t- tossing up the New York Knicks job with us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he, he made the, he clearly made the right, made the right. As good a coach he is now, with all the wins, he goes to the Knicks. That might have been, you yeah, know, three years right. in would be most likely would be fired with the rosters they put together, and then people would have tarnished him as not a good coach, and then he would have to work his way back up to another job. So it's that's a sliding door moment in itself. People forget that. Um, but yeah, Steve landed on his feet with a great roster with a lot of potential. But also, he made some 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 small changes that people don't realize that helped us make that leap from playoff team to, to potential finals team. Yeah, looking back at it now, it looks like it was a it was a genius hire. But did you guys have fears as players because this was a first time coach? Um, even though he's a former player, obviously that gives you some comfort. Um, but you guys are close to championship caliber, and they take a risk hiring a guy who had never coached an NBA game before. I oh, no doubt. I mean, that's, there's a huge risk. It was unknown. So I can't remember who else was in the running. I think Van Gundy was. Thank God that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> would have been a train wreck. Um, but I think Van Gundy and there was someone else rumored. I can't remember who it was. But, um, yeah, we, we, we didn't really know much about – well, I didn't um, – about Steve and coaching because you're like, he's, he'd been in the front office. He'd done some GM stuff. Very well spoken when commentating, so you can kind of tell he had a pretty good basketball IQ. That's all we really based it on. Um, yeah. But – yeah, it was funny because we basically hired two former commentators back to back of the Golden State Warriors, which is kind of a pretty funny stat in itself. So on yeah. the on the coaching side, um, we talked about this uh, a couple episodes ago, but we were talking about how it seems like the same same folks just constantly get thrown into the running for all the head coaching jobs, um, specifically kind of centered around Doc Rivers. When you look at coaches like that, that you know it they kind of get to the same place every year. It, do you guys as players, like you know, like if you were on the Lakers right now and there's, there's the rumors, it's, you know, either Doc Rivers or say Mark Jackson, like h- how does that affect the locker room? And, you know, what do you like, what's actually happening there? Why are the same folks, you know, constantly in the running? Well, if you're, if you're a team, for instance, that's the Charlotte Hornets, let's say, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You haven't really sniffed the, proper playoffs for a number of years. Um, if you t- if you ask those owners there, would you take a, a f- four, five, six seed next season? You'd say yes at all costs. So that would be a Doc Rivers. Like, mm. you'll get the playoffs. Will you go deeper than that? No, right? So the smaller teams that are not even sniffing the playoffs, they'll, they want that proven thing, that proven guy to get us to the first round. Maybe we peak at the second. That's it. But then it becomes that question of like you're not going to really get further than I mean Doc hasn't really been deep into the playoffs for since really Boston winning that championship the Clippers had their chances but it seems like his teams kind of falter at the same time um, he's a good coach but can he make that jump again and get to a championship who knows so there are some teams that would take that though right so right um, whereas there's a risk of the young unproven you know there's a risk in that there's a gamble in that you know, because they could be the best X's and O's, but how do they go on you know, an 82 game schedule with travel, with being tired, with late nights, early mornings, cutting film, a player going back at him, a star player pouting because he's not getting touches or minutes, like all that stuff. How do they handle that? And that's the unknown, where you know, with those proven commodities, you know, you know what what the you know what what stinks about them and what doesn't. 
whereas the unknown's a risk, right? But I think it's been – I think the last couple of years, though, I think the NBA's got a lot of new coaches. You know, look at Memphis. Yeah. yeah. Man, over at, at Boston. Yeah. AC, um, you know, I think even Houston. So, I mean, there's still – you know, it used to be way worse. Like, back in the day, like, you, it was almost like you had to – you had to have some NBA coaching experience to get in or, or be a head assistant for like 10 years to even get a, a sniff. Whereas now I think it's changed. There's a lot of a lot of coaches that have now got head coaching jobs in Minnesota as well that, that you know, you kind of like, where, where was this guy? You know, so I think teams are starting to take that risk now and, and be like, look, we want some more young driven guys than, than the same old, same old that might get you to a second round and that's, that's the best you're going to do. Yeah, and I wanted, wanted to also ask, because <laughs> speaking of NBA and, in the news, um, your country countryman uh, Ben Simmons has been getting a lot of uh, attention um, in the headlines for kind of a lot of the wrong reasons. I mean, some of the criticism seems fair. Some of it is obviously just uh, hate as well. But it's 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 it brings up an interesting point about what happens in the NBA, right? Like guys come in, you make a lot of money for the first time. You go from playing a game that you love to now you get a, you know, and you see this happen, sometimes you get a super max contract like Ben Simmons did. And then his play has fallen off. His It seems like the issues kind of have sprouted up since he got that contract. Um, what do you think he needs to do um, to kind of get, get back on his feet and kind of reach the potential that we all saw he had? Because it seems like some of this is really mental too, and that happens too in the game, I'm sure, You've had it when you've experienced injuries, when you have certain setbacks like he did in last year's playoffs. Getting over that mental hurdle can be challenging, and fans and people don't always understand that there is a mental side of this that that can prevent you from being the best version of yourself. Just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on him and and, and what 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 you think the future holds there. Yeah, it's been, it hasn't been good. I think um, you know it's going to be almost what, two years since he's been on a call by the time he's back again, um, or, you know, 20 months. Um, I think there's performance anxiety issue for sure uh, that he has, and, and everyone goes through it. Like, I've been through it. You know, yeah, you sometimes overthink things. Sometimes the moment takes control of your mind when it shouldn't. You know, injuries, am I going to be the same? Can I move the same? Or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or, or I'm not shoot, I have a bad shooting month. Whatever it is, right? It's clear that he has some anxiety issues. Um but I don't think it's a negative. I think everyone goes through it. You have to you have to address it. And, and the problem I think for Benny is going to be that you know for those people that have dealt with performance anxiety or self doubt or that kind of stuff is the longer you you uh, delay facing that beast, the worse it gets. Right. So um, we all know he's got issues at the free throw line. I've had issues at the free throw line. I've gone through those mental battles. So he hasn't been on court now for. You know, we're, we're counting month by month by month. That beast gets bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger and bigger. And and most, you know, every psychologist you talk to, sports psych, whatever, don't they'll all tell you like we're going to give you some tools, but eventually you're going to face the beast because that's the only way you're going to build equity to, to 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 defend yourself against the beast and and to go toe to toe with it. We can't we can't. You can do all the training drills you want. You can do all the, you know, office uh, sit down on the couch and what's wrong and let's fix it until you go and then have to reface that beast. It's it's going to be a problem. So I think I think this delaying is making it worse because it's getting bigger and bigger. And I think he needs to just you know have an off season where he's in the gym and people you know uh, sports psych 
give him some tools that, that that he works through. They're always, you know, it's it's the happy Gilmore thing, right? It's like yeah. go to your happy place, right? That's that's a tool in itself. When you're in the moment, go to a happy place, wherever it is. You know, that's one that's the simplest technique, but there's obviously much more you can do. And that's gonna be his struggle. I think um, you know, that first let's say he comes back for that first preseason game, for him that that's gonna feel like an NBA finals game seven for him. Because uh, everyone's yeah. gonna be like, he fixed his jumper. You know, does he want to get to the free throw line? Is he going to pass up a layout? All these questions, um, yeah. you know, have to face. And he's just, you know, he's got to get out there and and get back on the court. But it, look, it is a shame with what's happened, and um, I, you know, I, I question what the people around him are doing. You know, um, his agencies, people that are supporting him, family, friends. I'd hope they're, you know, um, giving the right kind of advice. And sometimes, sometimes that's a harsh, harsh critical advice sometimes it's not but i hope they're they're helping him because he's you know he'll go down as what as our best australian player ever um statistically and whatnot you know he's an all-star and all that kind of stuff and you want him to do well like you don't we don't i don't you know you don't want to see a guy go through that and, and just falter out of their career and just fade away you want him to come back and i think the american story is all about that it's all about a guy being down in the dumps if he comes back next season and excels and he's an all-star again he'll forget about the last two years but if he comes back and, and it's still questionable, people are going to double down and continue, you know, all these ESPN talking heads and all that shit just going to continue to make the beast bigger. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, you know, along those lines, there's been a, a lot of talk around the NBA, I feel like, recently with um, a lot of trash talk really getting off the court onto Twitter, onto, onto media. Uh, we just saw Patrick Beverly go on ESPN and just the fire shots in every direction. Um, I think it's fun as a fan, uh, but I definitely wanted to ask you about some of the things that have been um, circling recently. Uh, you mentioned CP3 earlier. Um, I was just curious, you know, the the reputation he carries because he is um, involved with uh, representing the players to a heavy extent, has been for a long time. Um, what's the dynamic like between um between different players and, you know, specifically CB3 and then other folks kind of from the players' union side, how does that play into the on-court rivalries as well? Oh, it plays into it a lot, even just agency to agency. You know, um, people, people don't realize, like, it's a, it's a sick game to an extent. Like, there's there's agencies that represent uh, media talent on ESPN that also represent players. Mm-hmm. So when you and look coaches. into Yep. When you look into which players and coaches are getting criticized on ESPN, you got to do a bit more digging at times. Yep. When you look into which players they're constantly promoting, you got to do some digging. You got to read between the lines and you figure out, hang on a second, that player they're always talking about, or oh, he's involved in the same agency as that as that anchor or that broadcaster. Or why isn't this why isn't this player being criticized as much as, you know, Patrick Beverly's point is why isn't C P getting the Simmons slander? You gotta dig deeper a little bit. But yeah, I think look, CP three's gone down as a Hall of Famer, he's a great player. I don't mind the banter and the back and forth. Um, if a player is being honest, I think there's no better basketball analysts than people that are playing for the most part. Um, I think the analysts that we see that get a lot of notoriety that haven't played the game, I'd always side with kind of the player that played and, and he's well-spoken enough to, to bring up, you know, stats to the argument and, and, and it's actually been there. I think I take more weight in those. Um, I don't mind it. Look, I think it's, it's opinion. It's, it's, you know, if you don't like someone's opinion, and he's getting clapped back at by some, and some some are agreeing with him. But you know, I think he's he's kind of forging out his own little media career post post uh, you know his basketball career because there's, they're coming out a little bit more. But players are so scared to go against the superstar, 
or go against a guy with like a CP3, for instance, has a bigger following, has more fans. So you go at him, you're going to feel the wrath of it, whereas Beverly doesn't give a shit. So you have to respect that. He just doesn't care. That's the way he plays as well. He wouldn't be in the league without that mentality. If he was just a, a nice guy, he'd be playing in Europe still, right? Yeah. And if he and if he's on your team, you love it, right? You love a guy that's willing to willing to go to war like that. Now, speaking of going to war, there's also been a lot of uh, issues this postseason with uh, fan behavior and fan treatment of players um, and, and players speaking out about that. Obviously, the most vocal um, person being Draymond Green and also CP3 about, you know, that the league has to do a better job of protecting its players. And, and like you said, there's also politics involved here with finding the players because it's a way for the NBA to collect a check. Um, out of the situation, but it doesn't seem like um, there seems to be a sentiment amongst players that the league, and this is across sports leagues, that they aren't necessarily being offered the protections um, that they should and their families aren't being offered the protections that they should, as well as controlling fan behavior. Obviously, you can't, in an environment that large, there's always going to be some, some ruckus and some unruly people. But what, what do you think about about that as a player? Did you feel um, did you feel some of the sentiment, and and do you understand what do you think some of the solutions could be here? I mean, if you've got ten people out of eighteen thousand people that have been idiots, yeah, you know, you just say there's you know <laughs> one out of ten people are dickheads in our society, right out of yeah. the street. So it's like yeah. they're pretty good numbers, like yeah. eighteen thousand, ten of them, but. I think it goes both ways. Look, I think there should be protection. You never want to hear anything that's about someone's family, about someone's race, religion, creed, culture, heritage, something that, you know, that's really, really kind of hits your soul. You never want to hear any of that stuff. But I know for a fact I've been on I've been on teams where players haven't said anything like oh, sorry, fans have said things like, You suck. Yeah. And the player will just get mad and get him kicked out. I mean, that's not helping either, right? So there's yeah. a there is a bit of a a balance there, and I know, I know there's been some stuff in the media previously where a fan's been accused of something racial that, that wasn't true. It was like, yeah, they were heckling the shit out of the player, but there was nothing racial, right? But on the flip side, there are fans that go to that extreme, right? So it's a case-by-case basis, but I still like to think out of 18,000 people, if you have 10 that are bad, I don't, I don't think it's a whole, our fans have a problem or our players have a problem. I think it's a minority of people, and look, People in the world are angry right now. Like it's one yeah. of the angriest times we've seen in, in in world history, as far as everyone's on edge. Like the COVID stuff, the restrictions, can't see family. You know, you can't even go to a regular doctor visit these days without having to jump through fifteen hoops. So, people out there, I don't know if you notice it where you guys are, but just you know, in traffic and road rage, and yeah. it's just and that that carries into NBA games. People are so yeah. on edge. They've only got a release for two hours. They're passionate about their team winning, and they say something, do something stupid. No excuse, but we're seeing it in all walks of life. So I think, look, I think there needs to be a balance. Um, I've come from playing college basketball and playing overseas where, you know, I, I had things thrown at me. I had, you know, I heard everything about my mom, my dad, my this, my that. And when you were kind of a road team, you were just kind of like, yeah, it is like, what am I going to do? Get 18,000 people kicked out? Yeah. Playing Europe, right? Like I, played, <laughs> yeah. I played, opened my Olympic campaign in 04 against Greece in Athens. We got spat on, we got spat on running out of the tunnel. Yeah. And I'm right. not acceptable behavior, but I think for the most part, the stuff in the NBA, bar what I said, like racial and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's pretty tame, like for the most part. And I think yeah. sometimes players get 
as a former player, we get we get in our feelings a little bit and get someone kicked out for saying something like, "Hey, Bogut, you're not worth that contract. You suck. Can't believe they paid you that." And I can just say, "Oh, he said something about my family or something racial, getting kicked out." And security, without even no investigation, whatever, will just remove the fan. That's wrong yeah. too, right? So yeah. it does go both ways. I, I don't know what the solution is. Do you go the hockey route and put a fence around the, <laughs> around the, <laughs> The court, you don't want that because that's the appeal of the NBA is you can almost touch and feel the players, right? So yeah. I don't think it's as, it's as a big issue as people um, make out. Like it'd be interesting to, to get the numbers, being being a data guy and a numbers guy of like how many fans have we had in live arenas for a season, you know, in the millions and millions and millions. How many fans have been booted out? You, you'll find it's 0.00 whatever percent, right? And that's no excuse, but I'm just saying I think it's been made into a bigger problem when you consider how many people come through NBA arenas a season. Yeah. I love that. It's a great take. And you referenced, you know, kind of the craziness in the world. I, I've loved watching you with the podcast, you know, um, especially as uh, I think you have a reputation in, in basketball. I know you have it in poker as well for being a good talker, good at trash talk, knowing how to stand up for yourself. Um, you've really translated those skills well to providing commentary on politics, on what's going on, uh, providing your perspective into the conversation. And you've also dealt with a different kind of flack from that. It's, I, I think, maybe different from what you experienced as a pro athlete, but maybe at the same time less in terms of what you experienced when you were playing maybe for the Warriors during those runs. Um, what's the experience like now as you've moved more into the political arena and, um, you know, I, I saw, I think there was another clip I saw from you where you were talking about how the government in Australia had gotten some TikTokers to make some anti anti bogut posts. Um, you know, what's life like these days for you? Oh, it's fine. Look, you, you're going to have people push back, right? I'm, I'm one of those rare people left on earth that takes every issue, whether it's political, social, whatever, on its, I take the case and I think about it and I make a decision about it. That's really because your political party tells you how you should look at those cases, right? So I'll have opinions that lean left. I'll have opinions that lean right. I'm like, I like this. I don't like this. So I'm politically homeless, um, and that's that's hated because you're not in a team, right? So yeah. if you espouse something that's pro-right, all of a sudden you're a right-wing Nazi. If you espouse something you're left, you're a left-wing whatever, and it's like because I'm constantly changing, people can't group me into, into to one thing. Um, and that frustrates people. They're like, well, you know, if he likes this, he must be this. Well, it's like, no, hang on a second. I don't like that neither. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind the pushback to an extent. It, it does get poisonous at times, but I mean, COVID's a religion in itself. Like it's, it's just, it's just crazy to me how, how people, are, it, it literally is a religion for people, you know, it, it found it as a religion, like, and <laughs> what I can't stand, it's like people are not thinking critically or logically with, you know, Small example, you're at, you're at an airport, you're checking in to, to check your bags on the thing, get your ticket, and you're standing on these X's on the floor, right? Mm-hmm. 1.5 metres X's. And you get on a plane and you're sitting like this next to someone and you smell their fart. Like, and you're just like, like, does anyone look at this and be like, this makes no sense? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, mask off, drink, mask on. You're just like t- touching things, you know, armrests and this tray tables and then touching yeah. your face and I'm just like does anyone am I the only one that sees this this is like so doesn't make sense like at all <laughs> but it, like, I get you know and, and and I just started calling that stuff out and then people were like you know you're you're, you're anti you don't believe in COVID you're, and I'm like no I, I 
I've had COVID. Like I believe I believe COVID's there. I just think the you know controls that the governments have implemented and the mandates and all that I think have gone way overboard and. I think they have a, 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 a much bigger effect on society than what COVID ever would because my home city, Melbourne, Australia, is, was the longest lockdown city in the world um, mm. last year, right? And I go there a fair bit still um, and people are, people have, you know, been through it mentally. Like you can see there's, there's, there's a pain in a lot of people's faces. People are struggling. Um, kids yeah. are struggling. Mental health crisis is at an all-time high there. I have a family, a family friend who has children try to get them psych appointments, eight month wait, you know, for a child to go see wow. a psych appointment, you know. So I was starting to look at all that and say, like, okay, I get I get it at the start why we did lockdowns because we've never been in a pandemic. I've never been in one, you guys never been in one. So like, okay, this kind of makes sense. Two weeks to flatten the curve. And two years later, we're like, you know, people losing jobs, people are and I just started calling it out. And some people like it, some people don't, but I'll continue to kind of speak my truth, sometimes wrong, sometimes right. And if, you know, people support, they support. If they don't, they don't. Uh, yeah, I want to I shift this conversation a little bit away from, like, specific topics and just kind of a general thought process because, you know, I, I kind of deal with some of the issues. I really like what you said about not having a team or not being part of a team. And just overall, just how our power structures um, work in countries and you see how much of this is, is not in the best interest. They're not really thinking in the best interest of society. They're all thinking specifically about the special interest. If you're right, how do I cater to and say certain things that are going to trigger a mindset versus just saying what you think is right or wrong, which I think we've shifted away from tremendously as a society. And re-election. And re-election. And, and you see this, and you and that's where some of this, and then the media joining the fray here in a sense that you have your right-wing media and they only speak to the talking points. They'll never go any way away from what they think the audience wants to hear. And then you have the left. There is no moderate or balanced opinions. It no. doesn't seem like that's respected anymore. And when you do highlight or you do speak that out, you get castigated or you get pushed away because these structures fear people being woken up and, and being told, hey, these people that you're digesting your information from, they are not serving your best interests. Oh, no doubt. And that's that's why these kind of forums are taking off. You know, people are going to go to podcasts and going to YouTube channels and going to because I, I don't watch TV anymore. Like I, don't, I turn on my TV, I'll turn it on in 30 odd minutes to watch the conference finals and I'll turn it off when it's finished. I'm not going to watch the talking heads. I'm not going to watch CNN or Fox News. I'm not going to watch any of that shit. Like I generally go to independent media now and I think that's, it's a concern for the mainstream media. Their numbers are at all time lows. Um, and there's a reason for that. Like people just are over it. Um, and and it generally it's the older population that, you know, aren't technically savvy to go and download a podcast and a lot of people that just don't know how to use a phone that still watch that and they're eventually going to phase out like with with age right so um it's just i just my whole thing even at the start of this was like when they brought in the hardcore vaccine mandates here in australia i was like well can we get can we have a discussion about it can we have a discussion about let's get someone on that's all in pro-vax at all costs we don't care if you lose your job and get someone that's in the middle and get someone that's anti it completely and have a moderator and have an open discussion on, on TV. That's what that's what people want to see. So you get in both sides and you don't feel like you're getting one network parroting, like you said, 
this side of things and then you turn the channel and it's just this side. Let's have a, an open conversation. That's what you want. You can't do it in mainstream media. They just won't do it. And you're just like, well, then you wonder why Joe Rogan's the highest rating media personality out there because he has long-form three-hour discussions with people um, that he often disagrees with and cops shit for, but he often disagrees with views and they have an open dialogue discussion. That's what people want to hear, which is amazing because we're, we're in this era of where everyone thinks it's a quick hit. You just want a one-minute clip, one-minute clip. I want quick hits, you know, like, like it's a drug on Instagram and TikTok videos and all that. Well, Joe, Joe Rogan's proven the contra, right? It's three hours his podcasts go for, four hours sometimes of just talking shit. They go all over the place. They talk about this and that, and it's it's popular because people are like, you know what? It's honest thoughts. It's back and forth. forth. I'm getting different opinions. Some of it I get mad at because I disagree with. Some of it I love, but people understand it's open and honest, and I think that's where the new world is going to go that way. Um, as much as they, they hate it, it has to go that way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we're we're in this phase where I think humanity has to decide that we want that as as a standard we want honest conversation we want transparency and you know if we don't create it for ourselves then we're just going to live in this perpetual cycle where we're constantly being fed headlines that are more and more extreme to try and evoke a back reactions out of us and then we're being fed the next steps to take that reaction and turn it into something that benefits the party that's in charge that's going to take money from us and then put it in their pockets yeah and that's you know and that's that's also the that's the fear, the, the counter to this is also, it is a it is a shame that traditional journalism has been thrown out the window because although we do have these podcasts and these platforms, you're also seeing a lot of uneducated consumers, right? Where they don't really know how to source information. And they the media that they see is biased or is not is not gone gone through the process of fact checking. You don't see that anymore. It's all about yeah, how do we start checking it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the is that are leaning one way or the other as well. So it's like, it's just like, you know, Google is notorious for it. Like it's Twitter. Like Elon Musk has exposed that it's Twitter's a hardcore left wing. So they fact check things and ban people off their forum, off their platform based on their ideologies, which is just bonkers. It's just crazy. Like, and it just, you, you just can't. My whole thing is like, whether someone's saying some stuff that's completely outrageous, whether it's racist, sexist, whatever, I want it out there, right? I, yeah. I, 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 people, I want that. I want to know that you're a racist. I want to yeah. like, let that person post it. Don't, don't, don't delete their account and delete their tweets. I want it there for everyone to see because society will take care of that person. Yeah. The danger is when you take people off the platform, what do they do? They form an intel group with other like-minded people. They have a chat group of 100 people, whether it be on WhatsApp or Telegram or whatever, right? No one's pushing back in that group. They're all saying, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you're right. Whereas if you do it in a public forum, society's going to take care of it. Society's going to be like, you're an idiot. That, that take was stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. So that's the dangers of, of canceling people. I'm all for yeah. having people with extreme views posted because I want to know. I want to know if I'm going to a certain place and that restaurant doesn't like Australians or, or Croatian yeah. people. I want to know. So I'm not going to yeah. go there. Yeah. Hide, I think it creates more extremism and then – you radicalize people that way and then they have a chip on their shoulder because, oh, my views got banned because I said this. They form with other people and then it, it just gets worse and worse. And I think that's what inevitably we're seeing in our society. Like there's a lot of angry people out there and it's not a, not a great time for that. That's, no, a, like, that's a really good take. And I, I, it's almost like hearing you say that, I feel like it traces back to the anti-bullying, like the cyberbullying era we entered where mm -hmm. people started to look at words as weapons for the first time. 
And I think that was, you know, to me, that was the start. I remember even when I was growing up in school, I got in trouble because we had created a forum for all the kids and we said a teacher was lame on the forum. And one of the parents saw this as a private forum and uh, emailed it. Well, pro- probably printed and mailed it because it was the nineties yeah. um, <laughs> to, to the school, and we all we all got called into the principal and got in trouble for it. And it was just one of those things that it's like, man, like I feel like I should be able to say my teacher's lame to my friends when I'm at home. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that was the start in in my upbringing of like this whole anti-bullying movement, and I feel like that that started this incredible sensitivity. To what people are saying where it's like when somebody says something you can just acknowledge that that's where they're coming from but it doesn't have to make you feel any type of way yeah or make you or it doesn't make you right i mean yeah. bullying sucks don't get me wrong you don't want you know just the standard school bullying is horrible like it can have horrible effects but you know if, if you're if you're saying something that's outrageous and someone says you're an idiot oh you're bullying me no no what you said is silly like i'm pulling you up on it we've gone too far now with the anti-bullying yeah. stuff gone too far we're like oh everyone deserves an opinion like you know like all that kind of stuff but that society generally took care of that unfortunately yeah. there were there was collateral damage and it's, it's just finding that balance of, of of correcting both i guess which is which is hard in itself yeah and, and I, I love your point i i have always said that too i want to know if you have a problem with me or if there's a thought that is dangerous to me i'd rather it be out there and what's fascinating about social media and the internet is people get upset because these guys are they're exposing themselves specifically because they don't have to say it. They don't feel like they have to say it to anyone's face because it's behind a keyboard. But in a way, it's great because they're exposing themselves to society through those platforms about who they really are. And it allows you to then make a determination and know who you're dealing with and what you're dealing with in a way that you probably wouldn't. It's like specifically in America, and, and, yeah, I don't, I can't speak for Australia, but a lot of these issues, they, they're under the radar. People feel them, but you walk around every day and you, they smile in your face. Social media is kind of, you get exposed. If there's a view that you have, you, you expose it, you put it out there. And then I know who you are and what you represent in a, in a way that I didn't know before. It's the best resume out there for employers too. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's yeah. so you can just go on and be like, you know, this is this like okay, we're not going to hire this guy or girl because we're like, ooh, this is a bit not not with our ideals. I, I, I'm not I'm not for canceling people, but it's yeah. that's how silly some people are. They put stuff out there that you're like, you probably shouldn't put that out there. Um, and I know a lot of businesses out there, a lot of big employers, they they scour social media now for people's yeah. Instagram pages and TikTok and see what they're doing, talking about, and see if it fits in with their ideal, the, the the business ideals of what they're trying to do. So yeah, it's a very fair point. Yeah, which is honestly, you know, it's a good thing because you want to work with people that are like minded, you know, have the same values. Um, you don't want a complete echo chamber, but you want people who share the same kind of fundamental basis of how you treat others. And I think when you find folks who don't feel that way, especially digitally, it's pretty easy to acknowledge that in real life, you probably won't even interact with them because people move so, so geographically differently as well in terms of what their belief sets are. So, you know, it, it just, it's, it doesn't serve anyone to spend your time getting upset on social. Yeah. I know it's not real life. And I, I gauge to your point earlier about the pushback I got from my COVID views and whatever, it was all online. Like, 
what's crazy is I need to start recording when I go out in public because the amount of people that come up to me and now, albeit I understand I'm big and stronger dude and people are probably scared to say it to my face, but that's a point within itself, right? I have 99% of my interactions are people saying thank you for your voice online. Like, I really appreciate it. Like we felt the same way. We, we have no forum, no, no following. But whereas you go on social media and sometimes you get caught in this like, oh, God, there's a pylon on me. Everyone hates me. It's like, no. Like it's not real life. It's, it's five, ten percent of people on social media are, are real life, right? Um, so many people. Ha- I, I have I gauge it with my friends that are everyday, um, everyday workers, tradie, tradies, uh, laborers, and I'd used to go to them and 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 find a, a trending topic on Twitter and ask them about it. And they had no idea, like no idea, like whether it be this debate or that debate or whatever. Even if you just went the, the abortion debate going on over there right now and all the issues with it. But if I asked some of my friends that work nine to five jobs about it. They would have no idea, nor do they care, um, yeah. and that, that's telling, right? That's yeah. telling. So sometimes we get caught in this bubble of social media, like, "Oh my goodness, this is huge." It's like it's really not that big. It really isn't. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, this 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 conversation is great. Um, we obviously re- want to respect your time. We've we've had you on here um, for a little bit now, but there's a couple couple things that we wanted to to touch base on before we we get out of here. One that's been on my mind, and a question I've always wanted to ask is that 73 win season um obviously as as cavaliers fans and i and and i thought about this it seems like how you become one of the best teams of all time in the nba is you get an australian center right luke longer was on the 72 win team you are on the 73 win uh team with golden state when you do reach that type of pinnacle you know it is a regular season award and you did, I think you went down in injury with injury in game five of that series. From a personal standpoint and from a team standpoint, looking back, despite all of your accomplishments, is that always going to be a sore spot for the Golden State Warriors? 100%. Yeah, for, for me it is. I mean, I just, that would have been the cherry on top of the cake, right? Like we couldn't get it done and we were, you know, in, in pole position in the series. And then just the beauty of an NBA series, though. Um, so much can change over seven games and the Draymond suspension, the injuries, and then they grabbed momentum and, and we couldn't we couldn't reverse the momentum back. Um, so, yeah, it is. I would have loved to have had that nice little picture on my wall that said 73 and had a ring next to it, but it is what it is. I'm, you know, lucky to get one. Like, there's a lot of players yeah. that don't even sniff a final. So I went to two of them, got a ring one year, never would have expected getting a ring within my first couple of years of being at Golden State. Like you just thought where Golden State was the past 20 years and thought, you know, oh, we got a playoffs experience that, but to get an actual ring and the way it all came together was, was great. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't regret anything to an extent, but it, it, it is a bit of a sore spot, like a tiny bit of a sore spot. Okay. Okay. And the, and, and the second thing I wanted to ask, or we wanted to ask you about is obviously you are an investor in Lasso um, and just wanted to get an idea of, you know, how, you came to that decision. What you what you like about the brand and the product, and what drove you to put your capital to support it? Yeah, Phil Helmuth. So he's the the, the link between us. Um, good friends with Phil, and play a lot of poker with him. And and, and he kind of reached out and said, "You got to look at this this brand." And I've I've kind of dabbled in some sock stuff before, and almost started kind of my own line with someone else like ten years ago. And um, uh, you know. We got some some samples out to me, got sent out to me, tried them and could see the quality and and what they were. You know, the, the good thing is that I love about them is they're easy to get on for a compression sock. I've had some compression socks that are like, like it's a workout to get it on. Like it's a bicep curl, tricep, you know, <laughs> honestly. So they were easy to get on and then once they were on, they were snug, they felt good. So um, it was a no-brainer to get involved and like, like kind of 
everything that, that, that the company is building towards. And I think um, with, with the world of, of, of recovery and, 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 and the, you know, the research that's now coming out with, with, with compression about how much it can help, not just professional athletes, but even, even people, you know, like my mum or dad, they go for a walk, they go for a swim, you chuck those socks on, help you recover for the next day. I think um, it's great. Love that, man. Love that. It's been a blast, um, you know, having you on the pod. It's been a blast working with you with Lasso as well. I'm sure this won't be the only time we touch base here, but um, thank you. Thank you so much for the time, man. Thanks for coming on and, uh, you know, learned a ton from your perspective and, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we can get your picks for the conference finals now as we close out. I'm going Golden State 4-2 and even though Miami won yesterday, I'm, I'm still going Boston. Uh, I said 4-2, it's looking like it might could go it could go seven but I, I still think boston if healthy um four two so hopefully i'm okay. right we'll see okay all right well we'll have to we'll have to hold you to those numbers thanks again man for coming on appreciate it no worries thanks guys Rally, boys, we get on now.